You're very welcome to the Firm and Fast Golf Podcast. I'm your host, Shane Derby. I'm very pleased to welcome Stephen Proctor to the pod today. A native of Maryland, but now based in Florida, Stephen served as senior editor at the Baltimore Sun, the San Francisco Chronicle, and the Houston Chronicle. Since retiring from journalism in 2013, Stephen has immersed himself in the history of the game of golf. His first book, Monarch of the Green, details the story of the life and times of young Tom Morris. It was shortlisted for the Telegraph Sports Book Awards 2020 Biography of the Year. Stephen's new book, The Long Golden Afternoon, will be released on the 16th of June. The book covers the years 1864 to 1914 and chronicles the growth of the game of golf as it started to seep slowly out of Scotland. We take a look at the protagonists, the main drivers that contributed to nurturing the game in new locations around the world. Many thanks to Stephen for his time and expertise. Many thanks to you for tuning in. We really do hope you enjoy the show. Hi Stephen, you're very welcome to the Firm and Fast Golf Podcast. How has your summer of golf panned out so far? Well, my summer of golf has been just fine. Uh, Florida, you know, we golf all year here in Florida. It's a little warm in the summer, but we've been blessed this spring to have a very mild spring. And uh, that's been great because uh, I like to walk and carry. And a lot of the months in Florida, it's too hot for that. So it's I've been able to walk and carry all month of May, which is unusual and great. And as you know, I'm heading off to Scotland tomorrow. So my summer of golf is about to get a whole lot better. Indeed. Yeah. Currently preparing, I believe, for an epic month long trip to Scotland, which will see you play the old Tom Morris Trail over the course of your visit. Uh, more of that anon. However, given your schedule this week, I just wanted to express my thanks to you for fitting me into your busy schedule. I guess before we delve into your new book, you might give us an introduction to Stephen Proctor, vocational storyteller, journalist, author, golfer, and as we found out recently on the Good Good Golf podcast, chess aficionado. You know, thank you for that. I have, I'm a person who has always wanted to write. Even as a little man, little boy, I published a newspaper for the street that I lived on. I lived on a dead end street of 10 houses called Beacon Place, and I published a weekly newspaper called The Beacon Light, which reported on the goings-on on the street, uh, in particular sporting events, softball games and the like that we played out in the street, sold it to everybody for a penny, bought baseball cards, and I have not ever stopped writing since that time. I've gone through different phases. When I was young, I wanted to be a poet or a novelist, and I imagined myself uh, doing that. I realized as I got a little older that I didn't really have that skill in me. And I ended up deciding that if I was going to have a life as a writer, it needed to be one that I could get paid some decent salary for. And I ended up going into journalism and had a very long and fruitful career as a newspaper reporter and editor, 35 years of newspaper work at the Baltimore Sun in Maryland, the San Francisco Chronicle out in California and the Houston Chronicle in Texas. And uh, 
I uh, retired from that not long ago in, nine, in 2013 or so, uh, just because it become so disrupted by the internet and it ceased to be fun to do. And I decided in advance of that, about 10 years before I actually retired, that I wanted to make my next phase of life to be a, a writer about the history of golf and just began a systematic study uh, to prepare myself for doing that. And I spent the last 10 years of my career as a newspaper editor reading pretty deeply into the history of golf. And uh, that led for me making a trip to St. Andrews in 2005. And that was the time at which I decided to start working on a book about young Tom Morris and sort of directed my research more specifically to that. Having recently welcomed your good friend Roger McStravick to the pod, who incidentally, given what you just said there, could well be a brother from another mother in terms of just always wanting to write, the subject matter for consideration today is inextricably linked with that particular episode with Roger, where we touched upon the legacy of the Morris family amongst other things. You obviously detailed young Tommy's story so beautifully through your book Monarch of the Green which incidentally was shortlisted for the Telegraph Newspapers Sports Book Awards in 2020. We have a tradition of oral history here in Ireland where the storyteller is known as the Shanachie, where history is both recorded and shared through the medium of storytelling. I'm very pleased to confirm that we can certainly utilise this descriptor when speaking of both your good self and indeed Roger, golfing storytellers. The Long Golden Afternoon is the title of your new book. Before we jump into the specifics, perhaps you might set the scene for us on the timescale that the book covers and its importance in terms of creating a future for the game of golf. I love to do that, Shane. When I started doing the Tommy book, one of the things I realized was that in order to have an understanding of what Tommy meant to golf, I really needed to understand what happened after he died. What was the long-term impact of his having become the game's first superstar? And so part of my extensive reading into history was reading forward what occurred in the generations after old Tom. How did the game evolve from there? And as I was doing that research for the first book, it occurred to me that what I was really doing was a bigger story that was two parts. And it's the story of how does a game that is played in one place only and almost really with very little to no change for several centuries from about 1400 all the way to 1850, uh, then in a period of only 50 years, spread worldwide and become one of the very few games that is played worldwide. And that. I then realized that that is the story you are telling. Part one of that story is the rise of young Tom Morris and the impact that he had on helping the game become known outside Scotland. Part two of that story is what Darwin referred to as the long golden afternoon, the age of golf that happened when golf first came to England up to the First World War. And so golf first made its way into England in the 1860s right after the introduction of the Open Championship, which was the very first golf event to be covered by newspapers that weren't in Scotland. And eventually Englishmen became slightly interested in the game 
partly through connections with Scottish merchants that were their friends or Scottish soldiers who were stationed where they lived and always wanted to bring the game with them wherever they went. And uh, in 1864, old Tom, through a friend he had made at Presswick, went down and laid out the first seaside links outside Scotland at Royal North Devon. That was the beginning of English golf in the sense that it was the first club formed in England that was majority Englishmen. There had been golf in England, of course, at Blackheath since the, James I came into England in the, in the hundreds of years earlier, but it was only played by Scotsmen at, at Blackheath primarily. Very few English people played, only English nobility, really. Some English kings played farther back than we think, as uh, historian Neil Millar has recently shown. Uh, nevertheless, North Devon was the first truly English club. And then it began to be followed by other English clubs at Royal Wimbledon and also at Hoylake, in particular Hoylake. Hoylake is to this period of golf what St. Andrews is to Scotland. And Hoylake, of course, was laid out by old Tom's brother, George. Isn't that correct? Yes, that is correct. And George's son, Jack, was the first professional and stayed all his life there. Uh, so that everything that happens in golf is traced back to the two founding families of the game when you start really researching how the game spreads. Those families being the Morris family of St. Andrews and the Parks of Musselboro. The, uh, the Parks have tremendous influence over the evolution of club making, in particular Willie Park Jr. Uh, and the Morrises on the spread of the game in terms of uh, Tom laying out golf courses all over Britain and Scotland and his son traveling into England in preparation for his open championships and stirring the interest of the English. One of my favorite stories from the long golden afternoon is in 1872, after the open has a uh, championship trophy had been won by young Tom, the challenge belt claimed as his personal property with three consecutive victories in 1868, 69 and 70 mere 19 year old at that time. They didn't have a trophy and the Open was delayed a, a year before the Rota that we know now was formed with St. Andrews, Musselburgh and Presswick and a new trophy, the Claret Jug was bought. During that interim, Royal Liverpool staged the first really big golf tournament held on English soil in 1872 at Hoylake. And all the leading professionals of the day came partly because their expenses were paid, which was extraordinary. Uh, their train fares, their food was provided for them. And of course, there was a giant purse, the biggest that had ever been offered at that time. The uh, young Tom won the tournament, as you would expect he would do with the Davy Strath coming in second. Uh, but one of the kids following around behind them, watching reverently as they played, was a young guy named John Ball Jr., who was about was 10 years old at that time. And uh, he then goes on to make the breakthrough that gets English golf truly going. In 1890, 18 years after that event, where he watched Young Tom, John Ball Jr. became the first person outside Scotland to win the Open Championship. And importantly, he did it as an amateur. Uh, and that event is where the Long Golden Afternoon begins, the book. Begins with John Ball winning that Open Championship because that is the event that truly started golf going in England. And within... Between 1890 and 1914, I think when John Ball stepped up to the D, there were just a few hundred golf courses in England at that point, less than right around 200, I believe it was. But by the end of the war, there were by the time the war broke out, there were 1,100. 
golf was growing 30, 40, 50 new courses every single year opening up in England. And uh, it was just an extraordinary period of growth brought on in large measure by that victory of John Balls in the Open. Sure, and obviously John Ball would go on to win the uh, the professional Open in 1890, as you said, but obviously would follow that up with eight further amateur championships. Quite remarkably, his second last was won at the age of 49 in 1910, and in 1912 he won it again for the last time at age 51. He wasn't quite 51 because he was born, he's a New Year's Eve baby. Thank your pardon. So Thank when he pardon. won the tournament, he was 50 in like eight months or nine months. Mm-hmm. So he was well on his way to 51, but he wasn't quite technically yet 51. But there are very few records in sport that I think you can say with 100 per confidence will never be broken. And that is one of them. Eight amateur championships is an accomplishment that is difficult to fathom, really. Uh, Bobby Jones always said that the hardest tournament to win was the amateur championship of Britain because you had to win seven or eight 18-hole matches plus the 36-hole final to get that accomplished. And as history has proven, and one of the reasons that match play doesn't get televised more is that an 18-hole match can lead to giant upsets like Johnny Goodman beating Bobby Jones in the first round of the amateur in 1929 out at Pebble Beach. And that destroys the event in the minds of some people. So, uh the idea of winning eight amateur championships staggers the imagination. And only one person has gotten close to that since that time, Michael Bonilak, and he was still three amateurs short. So I, I can't see that record ever being broken. No, for sure. And if you think really in the modern contemporary age, the notion of the working amateur it doesn't really exist anymore unless you're Stuart Hagestad, who I guess is independently wealthy in some, some, in some way, you know, that they sort of go to college and they head off the pro ranks. It's unusual if you have the career amateur, if you like, anymore. But just circling back, um, you, know, you know, in thinking about the influence that you know, Scotland had on the golfing landscape in England and slightly further afield in Ireland as well, I just sort of went back over some of the founding fathers if you like of some of our oldest golf courses and there you go Tom Gilroy from Carnoustie George Bailey from Musselburgh David Brown from Musselburgh who would have won the Open in 1886 I think quite quite bizarrely there was an extra slot I believe at the Open that year he was a roofer and got pulled off a roof to come and compete and he ended up winning the event and Mungo Park of Musselburgh would you believe was involved in extending Port Marnock out to 18 holes. So I guess the Scottish influence through both the professionals, the merchant classes, and indeed the military over here sort of had a big influence on kickstarting the creation of organized golfing clubs from 1881 on, where Royal Belfast or the Belfast Golf Club at the time was founded. You know, that is the same story everywhere you look in the world, Shane. You know, when golf clubs formed in England, all those thousand golf clubs that formed at the beginning, every one of them recruited a professional from Scotland. Because curiously, there was always a reverence, even among the English, for the Scottish game. And it was understood to be a Scottish game. And if you were going to have authentic golf in England or Ireland, 
or America or Australia or South Africa or India or any of those places. What you needed was a genuine Scottish golf professional to teach you the game. And part of the reason that uh, St. Andrews evolved into becoming the home of golf and the adjudicator of golf worldwide was that reverence for golf as it was played in Scotland and understanding that golf is a Scottish game and people wanting, even English, it's such a strange thing for Englishmen to wish to be ruled by Scots. You know, history doesn't suggest that in any other way, it certainly but they were all determined to be ruled by the Scots uh, and more or less forced the role of leadership on the Royal and Ancient, which was always interested primarily in the management of its own club and its own golf links and not necessarily in management of golf worldwide. But the rest of the world wanted them to be in charge because that was how they viewed the game as a Scottish game that they were adopting and embracing. And they wanted the ruler to be St. Andrews and that's how it turned out to be that way. Yeah, I mean, I guess that just speaks to authenticity in terms of, obviously it's a Scottish game, it just wouldn't feel right you know, for the decisions to be passed down from anything or anywhere other than St. Andrews. You know, and I think honestly, the Honorable Company of Edinburgh Golfers is older than the Society of St. Andrews Golfers that became the Royal and Ancient. And had it not been for interruptions in their history, where they had certain financial difficulties in the 1830s that caused the club to momentarily disband and sell off of its many of its assets and eventually to move to Musselboro from Leith. But the Honorable Company might have assumed the mantle of leadership of the game. They were equally important to St. Andrews at the beginning. And uh, St. Andrews, though, had the advantage of uh, being continuous in its history and also um, of having Hugh Lyon Playfair, who turned the city into this grand Victorian vacation location. Uh, and those two things helped combine to, to, to make St. Andrews become the home of golf. But it could easily have been the honorable company. Uh, it is the oldest club uh, known in, in Scotland. Uh, and, you know, but it, it turned out that St. Andrews ended up getting that mantle. Yeah, I understand that a trip to young Tommy Morris's gravesite in St. Andrews sort of kicked all this all off for you and was a real catalyst for your first book. From what you've just said, I'm probably figuring that seeing Tommy's statue and gravesite in St. Andrews was actually the kernel for not only monarch of the green but also the long golden afternoon that is correct when i first saw that tomb i had read enough about young tom and old tom to realize something about their importance in the game although not anything like what i know now uh but the thing that struck me standing in front of the statue was the little inscription at the bottom which says the statue is erected by contributions from 60 golfing societies well, if you do your research, you'll see that 60 golfing societies is just about every golfing society that exists at the time of Tommy's death in 1875. So literally every club in the land thought that young Tommy needed to be remembered forever. And they were willing to put up their own money. And it's, you got to keep in mind that this is an area where class distinctions are all important. Tommy's working class, the people contributing the money from the statue are gentry by and large and nobility. And all of them felt that he had to be remembered forever. 
So it was the fact that the whole golfing world thought that Tommy needed to be remembered forever that made me convinced that his life was a great story. And that was the story that I wanted to tell. Like, I, as I said earlier, in the course of researching that, I started to do a lot of reading. And of course, one of the things that I have always loved is Bernard Darwin. And part of the way that I taught myself enough to write about the history of golf was to read the entirety of the Classics Golf Library as my first act, which is 69 volumes. And one of them is Playing the Light by Bernard Darwin, which is my favorite golf book. And the first section of that book is called Heroes of Old. And it includes essays about John Ball Jr., Harold Hilton, John Henry Taylor, Harry Varden, Sandy Hurd, literally all the heroes who are part of Freddie Tate that are part of the story of the long golden afternoon. And those, those tales that he, those essays he wrote about those men really enchanted me. And they also made me realize that this period of golf that follows Tommy is an incredible period with incredible golf played and incredible stories. And I, I um, as I say, I began to realize also that uh, how the two things tied together, the connection of Tommy and the Morris family and the Park family to the spread of golf. And I saw this larger story about how golf spread around the world and became a modern game. So I think of the long golden afternoon as golf's coming of age story. And it really has uh, multiple large themes, you know, including uh, the impact of technology on the evolution of golf, the impact merely of intellect on the evolution of golf across lots of disciplines, in particular agronomy and science of various kinds, the impact of the rivalry between Scotland and England for supremacy in golf. That was the thing that really turned golf into a giant spectator sport. And that helped it spread from the wealthy people were the people who took up golf when it left Scotland everywhere, both in, in Ireland, in America, England, all those places for the very simple reason that children who grew up in those countries grew up playing other games. They didn't play golf. They didn't have that history of playing golf like Scottish children did. A kid who grew up in England played cricket or rugby or football. They didn't play golf. But so it was wealthy people who took it up, partly because they were the people who associated with the Scots that played, merchants and soldiers. And uh, that, that connection to the masses is something that took place in England and Ireland and elsewhere because of heroic action on the field by people like John Ball or Harry Varden. And those are the, those are the things that help spread the game to the masses. And, and so those are some of the big themes that the Long Golden Afternoon takes up. Yeah, for sure. Um, from the remove of the distance of 2022 in terms of looking backwards to the time frame that we're talking about, could obviously be argued that golf, soccer, cycling, swimming, equestrian pursuits, boxing, track and field sports, maybe martial arts and tennis may be the only truly worldwide sports. When you consider that in 1857 there were only 17 golf clubs in existence in Scotland, it's a wonder that the game has extended its reach around the world. So just picking up on some of those sort of major factors Maybe if we look at, at championships, first of all, obviously prior to his death in 1859, 
Alan Robertson was considered to be the best golfer in Scotland and by extension the world. As a result of Alan's passing, it became necessary to ascertain who would now hold that particular mantle. Over the course of the next 30 years, the title of champion golfer would be bestowed perpetually upon a Scotsman. In 1885, the Amateur Championship would be inaugurated by the Royal Liverpool Golf Club. Early winners, as you said previously, would include Horace Hutchinson, John Ball Jr. and Harold Hilton, all native Englishmen. John Ball Jr. would go on to become champion golfer of the year in 1890. I'm just wondering how important was this and subsequent wins for both Ball and Hilton in stoking the national golfing rivalry between Scotland and England? And how did this feed into coverage, interest and indeed probably tribalism? Well, I can tell you this. Horace Hutchinson uh, played in the 1890 Open Championship at Presswick, which was also attended by a man born in Scotland who became one of the early pillars of English golf named Dr. William Laidlaw Purvis. And the two of them together, after Hutchinson finished his round, he started hearing word that Ball was playing amazing golf, and they followed Ball home that afternoon. And uh, when they when they got to the end and... Um, Ball one, Laidlaw Purvis turns to Hutchinson and says, Horace, this is a great day for golf. And it, it was a truly great day. And Horace felt that it was a great day because an amateur had won. And that, you know, up until that time, the gap between amateurs and professionals was just gargantuan, uh, almost laughable at times. Some of the scores that, that amateurs who played in the championship would turn in. Uh, but when it got, the fact that an amateur had won was critical to the growth in England because the game was played pretty much only by wealthy gentlemen in England at that time. And as I said a little earlier, when, you know, when Englishmen started winning, ordinary people became to get interested. Because you can imagine that an Englishman's first goal when he takes up the Scottish game is to beat the Scots at their own game. Horace himself noted in his memoir that he was surprised that the professionals were not more upset than an amateur had won their championship. They seemed not to care about that at all. What they did care about a lot was that an Englishman had won. And they, they hated that. And the papers chided them too. Uh, in the Golfing Annual, which was uh, uh, a publication that came out, uh, had 23 volumes during this age, and which is one of the main sources for the Long Golden Afternoon, the writer, uh, at the, at the says that uh, henceforth Scotsmen will need to look to their laurels. And there's all these, uh, you know, every time another Englishman wins, uh, you know, they're, they're getting, noting that, you know, hey, no Scottish amateur has won this championship, but English amateurs have won it multiple times. You know, it's only two years after Ball's breakthrough that Harold Hilton won. So now in a two-year period, you have two amateur winners of the championship, both of them English, that really stokes the fervor of Scotland versus England. Even before the Open Championship, the minute Englishmen started playing golf, there were people writing in the newspapers, uh, a guy who, people would use pen names often for their letters to the editor, and there's a man named St. George who writes, and he, he wants to have a match right away between England and Scotland. Who in England can beat John Ball, or who in England can beat Harold Horace Hutchinson and so forth and so on. They want a match between England and Scotland right off. And uh, for a while, the amateur championship and the open championship satisfy 
that rivalry. And there's uh, a lot of back and forth with uh, Scots winning and then English winning. They keep going back and forth in the championships. For a while, England gets a big lead in championships and the Scottish writers are, you know, reminding the Scots and the Scots feel terrible pressure to win back their championship and stop seeing the Claret Jug carried south of the Tweed. So it gets to be heated. And of course, that brings out the crowds in both places. Uh, and so a lot of times you would have, um, you know, and then you would start having matches between the English and the Scots. Those things would draw out big crowds. So it got to be a very big rivalry. And that is one of the main things that gets golf going in Scotland and England is among average people who start to take up the game uh, in England in particular. Obviously, all Scots grew up playing the game. But younger working class people started taking up the game in England, partly because of the heroic performances of people like Hilton and Ball. You know, I'm just minded, and I, I know it's not something you referenced there, but I recall seeing Fred Daly, Ireland's first winner of the Open Championship, I think it was at 49, in Hoylake, actually. And as part of his acceptance speech, he says, I'm going to bring this now over the sea to Ireland. The good air will do it good. I'm just sort of visualising the, the Scots uh, seeing the Open Championship Claret Jug disappeared down south of the, the Tweed, as you say, with heads and hands. The end of the world is coming. They were distressed. And, and you can imagine the thrill in the Royal Hotel at Hoylake, which was the headquarters of the golf club at this time, when John Ball carried the Open Trophy back for the first time and was met at the train station by a huge clamoring thong of people and, you know, they had a horse-drawn carriage waiting for them, but they didn't have any horses drawing it. They had fishermen in their blue jerseys. Fishermen loved John Ball, partly because he was a farmer by trade, and they related to him in that way. And so fishermen pulled the, pulled the coach back to the Royal Hotel for the party. And at that hotel party, for the very first time, the claret jug was displayed on English soil. And you can imagine the, the, uh, the party that went on in the Royal that night. And, you know, it was similar, I think, in many ways to Tommy uh, wearing the belt home from Presswick in 1870 and going to the party at Mr. Leslie's Golf Inn, showing it off, letting people try it on. And uh, so it was a big event in England when those trophies came home uh, and also a big event for a club like Hoylake when one of their members won the amateur. And that was true of the English clubs whose members won amateurs, as uh, Scottish clubs whose member won amateurs as well. What do we know of John Ball and Harold Tilton? I know in preparation for this uh, conversation, Stephen, I was dipping into Robert Hunter's The Links, and obviously Mr. Hunter had a couple of rounds that he details in the book with John Ball. Um, I believe that the secretary at the time who Hunter spoke to afterwards was kind of quite bemused as to how a stranger from America could wrangle a game or two with Mr. Ball, who hardly ever played anymore. Obviously, he was a fixture in Royal Liverpool for a very, very long time, as I suspect Harold Hilton was. What do we know of the two gentlemen? John Ball is one of the more enigmatic figures of the age because he was intensely shy. He hated having a fuss made over him. And of course it was his whole life because he was the champion. 
Uh, he wouldn't give interviews. A reporter came to see him after he had won the Open Championship, and he said, well, I can't think of anything uh, that might be of interest to your readers, and that was all he would say to the reporter. Um, he, uh, he was a guy, he was very quiet. I think some of these traits probably endeared him to Englishmen, because Englishmen tend to be somewhat on the understated side and reserved, and Ball was reserved in the extreme. He hardly ever said much, uh, particularly when he was playing golf, uh, but he would, he had the capacity to do whatever he wanted. He'd be playing in a match with somebody getting a giant lead. And then he didn't, he felt like he'd say to his uh, caddy, we'll just finish him off at the Dunn. The Dunn is the 16th hole there at Hoylake in that age. And it's the one that's right next door to the clubhouse. So you don't have to go very far when you finish. And so he would let the guy win back a couple holes and then he would finish him off at the 16th. And he did that multiple times. Uh, he would, he just was, um, he was a very unusual man. He had the capacity for pulling his man back in a match when he fell behind at the very last minute on a constant basis. Uh, so I would say he is one of the two or three greatest match play golfers the game has known. Hilton was a different sort of person. Hilton loved the crowd. He was a garrulous guy, uh, talked a lot, chain smoked. Never, you hardly ever see a picture of Hilton without a cigarette in his mouth. He was a fidgety person. And so he often had difficulty in golf because of that. Whereas Ball was, you couldn't tell what was happening to John Ball. He was as quiet and reserved under pressure as he would be under anything. Uh, Hilton was better at stroke play than match play. And Hilton is uh, only two people in history have won more than one open as an amateur. And that's Harold Hilton and Bobby Jones. So Hilton's second victory in 1897, which uh, at the at the Open Championship uh, was an epic accomplishment. And Hilton was also really a great thinker and writer about golf. Hilton is uh, ball considered. I mean, excuse me, Darwin considered Hilton to be the most intelligent golf mind he'd known. And uh, and Hilton was a was a lovely writer, wrote many books, became an editor of Golf Illustrated just a very different sort of man than Ball. Hilton um, was considered by the Hoylake faithful to be what they call a toff, uh, to be upper crust, partly because he worked in insurance and other industries, whereas Ball was a farmer. But, you know, Hilton was not a rich man, and his whole life he had to scrape to make money. Uh, and he, you know, he got by, but he was never wealthy and was not by any means a toff. But that was how he was viewed at Hoylake, so they were really contrasting personalities. Hilton, a little younger than Ball, grew up admiring Ball. Uh, and um, there's a famous little story in Long Golden Afternoon about how he loses a shilling betting on John Ball when he's a schoolboy uh, at Norfolk. He, uh, John Ball plays a match against Dougie Rowland, who is one of old Tom's favorite players. Bernard Darwin referred to as an irredeemably dashing dog. He was a, kind of a rascal, was Doug Rowland. So, uh, sorry to interrupt, Stephen. He was James Braid's uncle. I believe they were cousins. Cousins, beg your pardon. And obviously had a huge influence on Harry Cole subsequently. Yes, he did, as an architect. Um, but anyway, they uh, there, a match was arranged partly because of this letter by St. George. Who can take on John Ball? Well, Dougie Rowland agreed to. And he they played a, a great match over 36 holes. Um at Roland's home course at Ely and at Hoylake and Roland crushed ball. Uh, but, you know, Hilton had a Scottish boy 
friend from school who was, you know, Hilton had never heard of Doug Rowland at the time this match uh, was played. And he was like, there isn't anybody that can beat John Ball. And uh, so he took the bet and he lost his shilling. I guess picking up on just, you know, reference there in terms of intellectual contributions, perhaps we can take a look at what role the aforementioned intellectual contributions in the form of newspapers, books, magazines, periodicals. What role did they play towards golf gaining a foothold in the consciousness of the general public, both at home and abroad? Massive role from the very beginning. Uh, What happened with the Open Championship in 1860, the introduction of that, is that it's wise to keep in mind that gambling has, has always been the lifeblood of golf. Most of the older clubs had bet books in which they recorded matches between members and what money was owed to whom so that, uh, you know, the gambling bets were paid off. And, uh, you know, so when the Open started, gamblers in London liked betting on it because it was just another opportunity to make a wager. And so the London papers began to cover golf in a way they never had before. That is the very first thing that starts to introduce people to the game. 1890 is such a pivotal year because when John Ball wins that championship, all sorts of things begin to happen. Number one, club makers in Scotland are overwhelmed with orders for golf clubs, so much so that Willie Park Jr. couldn't even play any golf for three or four years because all he had time to do was produce clubs to fill the orders coming in from south of the border. There were just a million orders for clubs coming in. At that same time, the very first golf publication devoted solely to golf makes its debut in 1890. It was called Golf Ye Royal and Ancient Game at that time. Years later, it becomes Golf Illustrated. That, and then of course, in 1890, the Badminton Library introduces that book by Horace Hutchinson, Golf. And uh, there you, I see your copy there. That is a pivotal moment in the history of the game. And it's kind of interesting because that, that series of books was produced by a nobleman who felt that um, sports were such an important part of being a well-rounded Victorian man, and you were expected to understand all kinds of sporting pursuits. And yet there was no encyclopedia for people who wanted to learn about these games. And so he started the Badminton Library of Sports and Pastimes. There were all kinds of volumes on, you know, hunting and fishing and skating and steeplechasing and this and that. Uh, but there was some discussion as to whether golf at 1890 deserved its own volume. And uh, they finally decided that it did. And that was pretty pivotal. Horace Hutchinson edited the book and wrote the vast majority of it, although he brought in a number of other key essays and stuff. So. These kinds of things, the introduction of the that badminton library, the introduction of the golfing annual, the golfing annual was really started so that you could keep up with the number of new clubs that were being formed. And so the majority of the book was a club directory that told you how to get to these places, what they charged, where you could stay, sort of like a travel guide. But the first hundred pages or so would be essays about various things of interest to the game, rules, controversies, whatever. And all these things started to raise the consciousness of golf from a media perspective. The other thing that happens is the super intelligent, rich people who take up the game often are important figures in their field, whether it would be uh, agronomy, 
whether it would be physics, let's say. So for instance, Freddie Tate's father, Peter Guthrie Tate, was a leading physicist and scientist in Scotland. And he's the first person who starts to conduct tests on exactly what happens when a club and a ball meet, what kind of spin is imparted. He started to try to theorize on how far could a ball be hit, actually. Uh, and you know, he uses his son, Freddie, as the, as the one to measure it. Freddie was a big driver of the golf ball. So all this science begins to be applied to the growing of grass, the making of golf balls, the making of clubs. And since that time, there has more or less been a nonstop scientific quest to make a difficult game easier. And the game has, in fact, become easier with each passing year. Uh, so all these things start to have a major impact, both on how golf is played and uh, how much it is known in the community. Um, I know you're a huge fan of Bernard Darwin's writing. Um, I too have assumed ownership of a number of his works through the auspices of the aforementioned Classics of Golf Library, which obviously is an excellent resource to access some of golf literature's greatest works. I haven't quite got to the amount of tomes that you have through the library, but I'm, I'm still working away on that. I'm just interested to know what is it about Darwin's writing that captivates you so much? It's a great question, Shane. I would say twofold. One is he's just a wonderful literary writer, leaving aside anything else. But I think the thing that gets me is that John, you know, Darwin viewed golf matches as titanic struggles between heroes. He viewed all sporting events that way. He was incredibly passionate about his side. You know, he could he could get a little crazy at an Oxford versus Cambridge golf match, uh, rooting for for Cambridge, where he where he attended school, or indeed a rugby union match, supporting uh, his love of Wales. Yes, he 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 was just a passionate fan, and he was a passionate man. He saw a lot of romance in life, even you know he could be romantic about train travel, you know, a, a, anticipating the stations that would lead to Luchers, where he would get off to play St Andrews or out to Aberdovey, which was the place his soul loved best. So he just had a very romanticized view of life that appeals to me. I guess I'm kind of a hopeless romantic, probably. One of my favorite things that's ever been said about me in a review was by the great Scottish literary critic Alan Massey, reviewed the Tommy book, and he pointed out that his surprise that Proctor seems to have managed to work for 30 years in American newsrooms and yet still be capable of hero worship. And I, I love that. <laughs> And, uh, and it's true. Uh, and so I kind of like Bernard partly because he's so literary and so smart, partly because he's so he sees things in such a romantic, passionate light. And those are, I guess, traits that I feel like appeal to me as a person, probably because I'm a hopeless romantic and a failed poet. Maybe we might look at the offshoot of those intellectual musings, which can be reflected in the term debate, let's say. I mean, history suggests to us that a critical mass of considered debate, as appears to have been facilitated in the likes of London, Philadelphia, Long Island, Southern California, not to mention Scotland, can accelerate the creative processes associated with golf course design, aesthetics, direction of travel, technology, to name but a few. The Oxford and Cambridge Golfing Society was founded in 1898 by Horace Hutchinson, Harry Colt and John Lowe. I'm minded to mention a photo that hangs on the wall at Rye Golf Club that captures 
a society match versus County Dublin in 1908 in my own home course of Royal Dublin. Some of the competitors on the day were historical luminaries such as Bernard Darwin, Stuart Patton, Hugh Allison, John Lowe and Arthur Crimm. And I understand that other important figures such as Alistair Mackenzie, Tom Simpson, John Abercrombie, John Morrison, Arthur Balfour, who would go on to be Prime Minister of England, were all members of the Society. How important do you feel the founding of the Society and evident cross-pollination with the various R&A committees and indeed the debating opportunities provided to members was to the development of the game during this period? I would say it was foundational. The Oxford and Cambridge Golfing Society and indeed the introduction of the university match itself in 1878 was one of the pivotal moments in the history of golf in this sense. When Oxford and Cambridge embraced golf, which was at that time a strange enough game that Horace Hutchinson remarked in his memoir that you'd get odd looks if you carried your clubs on a train. What are those things? What do you use them for? But the introduction of that match meant that all, virtually all leaders of the future of Britain would grow up steeped in golf because they, it was played at the university. And so I think the foundation of the forming of the university match is one of the most important moments in the early history of golf. It predates the amateur by seven years. It's a very, we became a very big fixture. And the Oxford and Cambridge Golfing Society itself is literally the most powerful intellectual force of this age. Virtually all improvement that happens in the game is traceable, I wouldn't say all, but the vast majority is traceable to members of the Oxford and Cambridge Golfing Society, and in particular to John Lowe. John Lowe was a massively influential figure in golf during this age, and uh, a lot has been written about his life and work by a man named Robert Crosby, who's uh, on Twitter a lot and is a very, very intelligent guy who's done great work in the periodical through the green of the British Golf Collector Society on John Lowe and his importance. And I understand he's working on a biography of him. But the, the society was at the center of every debate. Members of the society were on the Rules Committee, including John Lowe, who was chairman of the Rules Committee at St. Andrews for many years. Harry Colt was on the Rules Committee. They had a lot to do with the administration of golf uh, and also with the response in particular to the arrival of a new ball. You know, I think the most important moments in the history of golf are related to the arrival of new balls. The arrival of the gutty ball is the thing that first opens the game to the working classes, even in Scotland, to be able to play on the links itself. Scottish kids played in the churchyard on a street, wherever they could, using a champagne cork filled with some nails to make it have weight, whatever stick they could come up with. But when the gutty ball came around and made the ball cheap enough for everybody, that is the thing that sets the revolution in motion. And it happens just as Tommy's coming along. But in 1902, a new ball comes from America called um, the Haskell ball, named after its inventor Coburn Haskell. And it's a round rubber cord ball. And that really changed the game in the sense of making it on order of magnitude less difficult. The ball is much more easy to get airborne and to control and to hit over a great distance. And of course, that's the thing that sets off two debates that are pretty much still going on today in more or less the same terms. One of them is uh, what should be done about a ball that keeps going much farther? And the other is what do we need to do to the golf course to, to address the reality of this new ball? 
And uh, the, the latter thing leads to rethinking of uh, golf architecture itself, starting principally with John Lowe and Stuart Patton, who begin, who, who begin to realize uh, that why St. Andrews and Presswick and places like that were considered superior venues because of the strategy that was required to play them. And they begin to start thinking in terms of that for architecture generally. And John Ball in 1903 writes one of the most influential books in the history of the game concerning golf. And it is uh, more or less a manifesto for a different way to think about how to design golf courses to make the game more strategically interesting and to be focused less on crime and punishment. And that starts an architectural revolution that is now sort of having a revival with the new art, uh, artists like Tom Doak and Gil Hans and people of that nature. Sure, if we just take a look at the rule situation, and obviously we touched on it briefly there a few minutes back. You mentioned that the first 13 rules of golf were formulated in 1744 by the Honourable Company of Edinburgh Golfers, who were based at Leith Links in Edinburgh on their five-fold golf course. That version of the Honourable Company would disband in 1831, and the RNA would pretty quickly assume the responsibility for the game in Scotland and farther afield. How important do you think the formalisation of the additional rules that came to bear on the game of golf and ultimately the administration of the game from the, the seat at St Andrews was to the continued growth of the game? I think it was truly important, and I also feel as if English deserve an awful lot of credit for that. When the game, you know, St Andrews, as I said earlier, always wanted to just be in charge of St Andrews. They would answer rules questions. If you sent them a question, they would send you an opinion, but they would not make a ruling. And they did not see themselves as ruling over the game of golf in any way, nor did they want to. Uh, but the English, as the game spread, and of course, you know, when you have golfers, you know, golf courses growing every single year, the English just felt like a game that was growing that fast had to have a central authority. And it was the English who pushed for this. Actually, it was a Scottish Englishman in particular, Laidlaw Purvis, and others who began this great debate in uh, in the field magazine, the country gentleman's newspaper, as it was known, uh, there was a two or so two year debate over, we need to have somebody in charge of this game. We need to have somebody in charge of the rules. And, you know, so it, that went on for quite some time. And the ultimate resolution of that was for St. Andrews to form a rules committee. Uh, and the way that that was gotten to uh, was that, the amateur championship, when it started at Hoylake in 1885, Hoylake realized, Hoylake was such a forward-thinking golf course, almost everything good about the game today has its antecedents at Hoylake, honestly. They realized that no one would truly accept the amateur as a national championship if it weren't run by the Royal and Ancient. And they approached the Royal and Ancient pretty much right away about taking over administration of the championship. Royal and Ancient was reluctant, as they usually are, but eventually they were persuaded to do so, and an amateur championship committee was started. So this was a committee that had representatives from golf courses in England and Scotland, uh, and uh, they, they became the administrator of the championship under the auspices of the Royal and Ancient, and that gave the championship the imprimatur that it needed to become the major championship of that day. 
And that, I think, is a pivotal moment in the history of golf because it demonstrates to you that what the English truly wanted was the game to be run by Scotsmen. And it was so that same instinct that caused Hoylake to go to the Royal and Ancient for to take over the amateur championship is the one that eventually guided leading English people to, to sort of push the Royal and Ancient to, to take over leadership on the rules matter. It's interesting to me in particular that women's golf helps to get this ball rolling because in 1893, uh, a bunch of golfers, English golfers that were women formed the ladies golf union. There was a lot of discussion about whether it should be a golf union formed separate from St. Andrews if they didn't want to take charge. And there were certain English who, who thought that was a great opportunity but the majority wanted St. Andrews to run it for the same reason that Hoylake wanted St. Andrews to run the amateur. And then in 1893, the women formed the ladies golf union. They set up a set of rules for the ladies play. They set up a handicapping system that eventually gets adopted by men. What they demonstrate to men is the value of having a central authority. Laidlaw Purvis saw that as a wonderful opportunity to put his ideas into practice with women and then to show men what it might be like. And I do feel that uh, the impact of Ladies Golf Union helped to direct the formation of the Rules Committee, which happens in 1897. After a lot of toing and froing in 1897, the Royal and Ancient agrees. Their first suggestion was that the Amateur Championship Committee oversee the rules, since it's a broad authority. But in the end, St. Andrews, if they were going to do it, they wanted it to be a committee of only members of St. Andrews. And the truth of the matter is, there were enough members of St. Andrews who were also members at Hoylake and Wimbledon and Royal North Devon and all the key English clubs, St. George's and everywhere, that you could get what was considered to be satisfactory national representation on a committee that was only members of the Royal and Ancient, which is how it ended up happening. And that's when the Rules Committee got formed in 1897. And that's a pivotal moment for golf because it has, it has number one, agreed upon rules for everybody, and it has direction for the future. Yeah, you know, interesting that you mention 1897 and the Rules Committee at this in a contemporary sort of view, uh, perhaps suggesting an ongoing inflection point that that we've been at before as a game of golf and a, as a, I guess, having digested various books by Lowe and Colt and Mackenzie and Hunter, amongst others. It amuses me that the conversation we're currently having regarding ball and club technology the scale of the golf course, the scale of the game, if you like, at the pro level, driving distances of the very best players is actually no different today than it was back in the early 1900s. I suspect you'll agree with that assessment, and and if so, why do you feel that the RNA ultimately decided upon inaction in terms of the introduction of the wound Haskell ball? It's a great question, and and the answer is multifaceted. Um, When the... the, uh, in 1902, Sandy Hurd won the Open, and the amateur was won by a 53-year-old man. Uh, but both of them, the and uh, there was an immediate reaction that the ball went too far. John Lowe and a very famous Scottish amateur named Muir Ferguson put forward a motion that was put in front of the rules committee to declare that the gutty ball was the ball that golf would be played with, 
with the goal of preserving the original Scottish game as they saw it. They felt that the basketball as not only was took the skill out of the game, but it also threatened the, the uh, viability of every golf course in the kingdom. And um, well, when the debate happened, you know, as they do now, they took it, but it was like a year or six months. I forget the exact time frame before they acted on it, but there was plenty of time for it to be discussed in the media. One of the thing that you had happening, keeping in mind now that amateurs are still the most prominent people in the administration of the game. Amateur players found that the ball improved their game dramatically. In particular, one amateur of high prominence named Arthur Balfour. And the amateurs, uh, Garden Smith, the editor of Golf Illustrated, all felt this ball should be allowed. Uh, and so when the vote came, even before the vote came, of course, all the professionals were against it. One of the very first acts professionals took uh, when they had formed their own association in 1903, the Professional Golfers Association of Britain, was to declare that only gutty balls could be used in their competition, which really ticked off the amateurs because they felt that they ran the game and that was a lot of chutzpah on the part of them, uh, of the professionals to declare anything about how the game would be run. And uh, so when the vote came, uh, the committee voted to accept to, to not, to, they knocked down the motion by Lowe and Ferguson uh, pretty, pretty heavily. I forget the actual vote, but Harry Colt voted uh, in favor of knocking down the resolution, the famed architect who would later have to have a lot of his courses redone because of the ball. Uh, and, uh, you know, Hutchinson voted against uh, the gutty ball as well. Uh, so a lot of the leading figures were just of the opinion that it's good for golf if the game's easier for amateurs to play. It'll help spread the game. It'll make the game more fun for people, which is more or less the side that people who favored the technology today take, which is what's wrong with making a hard game easier for the average person? And that when they asked Balfour, that was kind of the nail in the coffin. They asked Arthur Balfour for his opinion. And he gave an opinion in the newspaper that, you know, this ball is good for the game. And he was just a truly influential figure in the early history of golf, partly because, as Hutchinson wrote in his memoir, there must be something good to the game if a man of Arthur Balfour's substance plays it. And that helped a lot of people to take up the game. Uh, so when he weighed in on favor of the, of the Haskell ball, that was sort of the final nail. And even before the vote, uh, some of the professionals started playing with the ball. They could see which way the wind was blowing. And there was a tournament like a week before the vote and almost every professional, even John Henry Taylor, who was the strongest against it, uh, they all played with the ball. They saw that they were beaten. And, uh, and you know, Sandy Hurd had the most vitriolic quote about not playing with the gutty, not playing with the Haskell ball. But when he got to Hoylake to practice for the Open Championship in 1902, John Ball, of all people, the most conservative guy in the world, was playing with the Haskell ball. And he lent one to Sandy. And Sandy, like, played the round of his life with it. And he said, ah, oh, the hell with it. And he went and bought four from Jack White's <laughs> shop. Uh, not Jack White. I mean, uh, Jack Horace's shop. And uh, he, uh, he won the Open. So, you know, there were just different ways in which it was defeated. I think it was just really the vast majority of people like the idea that the ball made the game easier. Yeah. I mean, if you were a conspiracy theorist, you might suggest that in a two-horse race, one should always back self-interest. 
uh, and whether that's the professional game, the amateur game, or indeed Harry Colt, the nascent architect, shall we say. Obviously, he wasn't going to know what, what would transpire for the next 20 or 30 years. Arguably, if the notion of bifurcation had been put in the rules in 1901, 2 or 3, perhaps we might be in a better place than we are now. But who knows? Hopefully there's something coming down the tracks in relation to the RNA. And the I certainly test. hope so. I think the game has, at the professional level has become virtually unwatchable because there are only two shots in it, a drive and a wedge. That's the whole game. Uh, and that's not exciting to watch to my mind. Uh, I much prefer to watch women's golf now because women still hit the ball a reasonable distance and are required to play the golf course the way the architect designed it to make more difficult and more creative shots. It's not driver wedge on every hole, which it is for men, even on, you know, ridiculously long holes. Uh, so I, I hope so. I, you know, bifurcation was very much a part of the discussion, although they didn't use that hideous word, uh, in 1902, that Lowe and Ferguson were perfectly happy to have the gutty be the ball used in all real competitions and let other amateur players play with whatever they wanted. But if you were going to play for the amateur championship or for the open or for, <coughs> excuse me, your club medal, you'd have to play with a gutty. But if you just wanted to play your regular rounds using a Haskell, they were fine with that. Um, but, you know, it's difficult. When you're voting against scientific progress, you're most of the time going to lose. That's what history is for. For sure, for sure. I mean, in terms of the perhaps some stuff that we haven't covered there, Stephen, is there any other characters that people need to know about that they may not be completely au fait with? Um, I mean... John Henry Taylor seems to be quite an interesting character. Any particular tidbits you can share with us in relation to him? John Henry Taylor, in my view, is one of the two or three most important people in the history of the game. He was a great leader. He had natural leadership ability. You know, he, uh, he started his life desperately poor. His father uh, was a laborer and his mother took in washing. Uh, so he was dirt poor growing up. His first job, in fact, was to be a boot black for the Hutchinsons, who also lived in North Devon, where he was born. Uh, but Taylor grew up to be a great golfer, one of the great golfers of his age. But more importantly, he became the leader of professional golf as it was played. Uh, you know, what happens in about 1901 or two, some of these years, I just don't have notes in front of me. I don't remember perfectly. But in the early part of the, of, the, of the 1900s, golf clubs decided that what they wanted to do was to let the golf shop out to the highest bidder and no longer have it be the sole province of the professional. Of course, nobody who was a professional golfer, except for, say, John Henry Taylor, Harry Varden, and James Braid, could make a sufficient living winning tournaments. They needed to make a living by selling things in their golf shop and repairing clubs. That was a central part of their income. And of course, a professional golfer would always be outbid by a company with capital. And so when that happened, uh, John Henry Taylor and a number of others wrote newspaper to letters to the editor of newspapers railing against this practice. And the ultimate result was the formation of the Professional Golfers Association to uh, combat clubs giving away this right to own the pro shop and that ended up stopping. Uh, but what was more important was eventually the PGA got backing 
for its own championship in 1903, the News of the World Championship, which is a match play championship. But it also had qualifying matches all over the country where you had to earn enough points to get into the News of the World Championship. So what it did, it created the first tour for professionals and gave even middling professionals who couldn't, would never be top of the leaderboard and therefore never get invited to the thing that you really made money off of, which was an exhibition match, uh, a chance to earn a decent living by, by placing in tournaments. Many more places paid in those tournaments than they did in the Open. The Open only played the top four or five places usually. Uh, and, you know, there were many more tournaments. There was a whole circuit. So you could, you could potentially start to earn a living golfing that would be respectable. And the leader of that movement was John Henry Taylor. He became like golf's indispensable man, essentially. And he, uh, he also, he and Varden and Braid um, carried on with something that old Tom had begun. They behaved in such a way that they earned the respect of gentlemen and nobles who were inclined to look down their noses at the working class. And by behaving in this way, and they, ate, they opened up a world for professional golf professionals that would never have existed. And that's fundamental to the growth of the game, uh, particularly in England and elsewhere, and uh, fundamental to the direction of the game. So I think of John Henry Taylor as the superstar of, uh, of the long golden afternoon from the standpoint of professional golf. He's a, he's a, he uh, ended up doing well enough in his own life to send his child to Oxford whereas he grew up as a boot black. So that's, that's a pretty big accomplishment for one life. Absolutely, a s social climber by the sounds of it. So, I mean, it's, it's interesting, I guess, just to contextualize the lot of the pro back at the turn of the century. I was reading a piece during the week with regard to James Braid, who was making suggestions on behalf of a golf club here in Ireland somewhere, and at the end of his afternoon or morning traipsing around the fairways, as he was a golf professional, he wasn't welcome inside the clubhouse. Despite being the the professional or the person with the experience in relation to making revisions and suggestions in terms of what might go on the golf course. Also, if you look back as far as 1860 in terms of the first Open, I think there was a request from Prestwick that and invitations went out throughout Scotland and England that ultimately the golf clubs themselves would have to vouch for the sobriety and the behaviour of each pro and as a result of that some of them weren't willing to do that and therefore some people didn't get to compete so I guess a lot of a golf profession in, in terms of the date range we're talking about in terms of the long golden afternoon things are improving but they're still kind of seen a little bit like second class citizens not a little bit, completely. Uh, they, they were definitely viewed as second-class citizens. Uh, every player who played in that first Open had to wear a jacket that identified them. Uh, so they all had the same jacket on. Uh, they were all followed around by markers so they wouldn't cheat. Uh, and uh, there, was, uh, there was not very much respect for them. And one of the things that men like John Henry Taylor, James Braid, and Harry Varden do is to earn respect for professional golfers. Old Tom before them, of course. You know, it's, it's worth pointing out that old Tom was not permitted in the Royal and Ancient Clubhouse either. Uh, he was able to go in when he was attending a meeting of the Green Committee because he was a member of the Green Committee, really mostly 
was the keeper of the green, and so he would get his instructions from the green committee about what to do. And of course, the green committee is going to have people on it like Harry Colt or whatever, you know, men who had opinions and who had a great idea about what they wanted done to the course and so forth and so on. So, you know, professionals were never allowed in any clubhouse. They were they were definitely treated as second class citizens. But that, you know, Taylor and Braid and people like that begin to chip away at that, uh, partly by their own behavior and partly, you know, obviously times change as we go along. But James Braid, you know, worked most of his life at Walton Heath. Walton Heath was the place where all the, you know, first class politicians played and a lot of royalty also. You know, James Braid's pupils included like Churchill and, you know, the, the uh, Prince of Wales and so forth and so on. And, you know, so then he began to you know be able to attend dinners with the Prince of Wales. One of my favorite little stories is Braid gets to attend dinner with the Prince of Wales and his children uh, reach out to him the next day like, hey, did you get to sit and meet the Prince of Wales? Did you sit near him? And he said, no, the prince sat next to me. <laughs> you know, they, uh, they, uh, they, they, they came to, uh, to, to have a high opinion of themselves and they deserved to. They, they did a wonderful thing for golf. And it was, uh, it was their, their, you know, their behavior that helped to, to establish the, the professional golfer as, as somebody of class and distinction. And of course, some of them, in particular Varden, just earned gobs of money. You know, Varden, when he took his tour of America at that time, it, you know, he had reached a level of fame that hardly any athlete in Britain had, except with possible, uh, you know, um, very few athletes in Britain had the level of fame that he had. And uh, W.C. Grace probably being one of them, the, the great cricket player. But he, when he took that tour of America, he made many thousand pounds, which is a lot of money in that age. And uh, so they, they earned quite a bit of money and, and, and through that means sort of worked them, themselves up in the class level and, and in that process brought up other professionals with them to a level of more respectability than they'd had at the beginning. Sure. Am I right in saying on that tour of the States, uh, an extensive tour of the States, in fact, I think if memory serves, he only got beaten twice by the same person? He got beat by George Nichol on two different occasions. The only time he was beaten one-on-one, -on -one, he, he did lose sometimes when he played the best ball of three or four people, you know, and, and between the three or four people, they, they, could, they could occasionally be. But he was, it was just a heroic, crazy performance. Uh, and Varden achieved a level of perfection that very few golfers have in history. You know, uh, he goes on an absolute tear uh, over a two-year period, playing in 17 tournaments, winning 14, and finishing second in the other three. Wow, uh, wow. So he did some things that are just stagger the imagination. And that was how he ended up getting invited to America, uh, in part because of, of, of those things. Just picking up on what we were speaking about in the introduction. So you're departing for a month-long trip to Scotland tomorrow, where you'll officially launch the new book on the 16th in St Andrews quite fittingly on Tom Morris's birthday. What can you tell us about the old Tom Morris trail? I believe 18 golf courses that you're going to be dipping your toe in the water. This is one of the things that I love about golf. It brings people of like interest together. You know, when I worked at the San Francisco Chronicle, the CEO of that newspaper is a man named Frank Vega. Frank Vega had been running for many years a golf tournament that he started really to help the guys that printed the paper who were not wealthy to, to have a decent vacation. 
And at first they did it in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, and then they started doing it in Orlando, Florida, which is very near where I live. And so for a number of years, I've attended that tournament. Uh, like many CEOs, uh, Frank is a golfer who enjoys golf travel. Uh, he's gone to Scotland, Ireland, multiple, multiple times. Uh, and his touring company is a company called Bonnie Wee Golf. Uh, and, you know, wisely, the two leaders of Bonnie Wee Golf, David Harris and Stuart Morrison, uh, realized that it was worth their while to come to the United States and play in this tournament because, uh, you know, obviously very many other wealthy CEOs played in it and some poor, humble newspaper men such as myself as well. Uh, but I became friends with those two guys through that tournament. And uh, last year, uh, <clears throat> when it was Tom's 200th birthday, they had come up with this idea for their touring company that they were gonna form something called the Old Tom Morris Trail, which would be a series of golf courses in Scotland that would show you the impact that Tom had literally as the Johnny Appleseed of golf, going and starting golf courses all over Scotland and England and Ireland and uh, never did go elsewhere, but in Britain. Um, and they, they didn't get it launched for his birthday because it's a complicated matter to use anything involving old Tom Morris. His, the rights to his name and likeness are owned by the St. Andrews Links Trust. And so there's an approval process that one needs to go through in order to, to get permission to do anything that trades on the likeness of old Tom. So I had helped them write some copy for their website, just as a friendly gesture a year or two ago when they tried to get started. And um, they finally did get approval for everything. And this spring, the trail launched. So it uh, in advance of the 150th open. So they then decided that it was in their best interest to have me come and play the 18 courses that are on this trail. Results. The trail is, yeah. So, you know, they have, they're paying my expenses to go do it. I, I would never be able to afford to do a thing like this without, without that. Um, and the trail is, um, begins in Ashkernish in the Outer Hebrides. And from there, it extends to Doorknock, uh, Nain, uh, Nairn, Tain, Old Moray, lots of golf courses. So it goes up the north to Doorknock, all down along the east coast, Cruden Bay, Montrose, Carnoustie into Fife, St. Andrew's New, St. Andrew's Old Crail, into East Lothian, Muirfield, North Berwick, Dunbar, uh, out to Presswick and ends at Makrahanish. Now, as we were talking about a little earlier, this year is very difficult to get tea times and arrangements. So I am not playing the trail in its actual order. I will play the trail beginning at Makrahanish, uh, where I'll be teeing it up on Friday. Uh, with uh, with uh, the captain of the club and uh, uh, a fellow from Twitter that I that I enjoy, links Robbie Robbie Wilson, and uh, my trail will go from Makrahanish uh, up to Presswick over to uh, East Lothian into Fife, so that I can be in Fife in St Andrews when the when uh, to speak at Waterstones on the 11th of June and help to launch the book and be there on the 16th on the actual launch day, and then I will finish um, finish the trail. Go from there to Ashkernis, up to Doorknock. I'm going to get to play Doorknock with the great writer Lauren Rubenstein, which is uh, going to be one of the highlights of my trip. Lauren has uh, written a book called A Season in Doorknock, which you may or may not have read. And he's been made an honorary life member of Doorknock, which is an unbelievable honor for him. And so he happens to be in Doorknock the week I'm there. We're going to play the course together. He's a member there. 
And then uh, I'll end up, my last round will be in Carnoustie, uh, the hardest golf course in the world. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it in a way that's just hard to describe. And heretofore, Stephen, have you played many of the courses that are on the OTM trail uh, thus far? Yes, I have. There are 18 courses on the trail for the obvious reason. I had played previously seven of those, primarily the courses that are in the Fife and the Lothians um, and Presswick, obviously. I, um, so I, I, 11 of these courses will be new to me. Uh, and I'm, lo- I'm looking forward to playing those in particular, obviously, since I haven't seen them before. Um, but I have played uh, Dorna, Carnoustie, the new course, the old course, Crail, uh, and North Barrett previously. So I've, I've played seven of them. Muirfield, I've not gotten to play before, so I'm looking forward to that, obviously. Some of the little ones is the ones I'm looking forward to, like Cullen. Cullen Golf Link sounds awesome to me. Um, I'm, I'm going to play in an event there actually on my birthday so that's going to be a special treat and Ashkerness I'm really looking forward to because I feel like Ashkerness is probably agronomy wise greenkeeping wise as close as you can get to actually playing golf under the same conditions that people would have played at the turn of century so I'm going to take my hickory clubs over to Ashkerness and play it with hickories I'll probably play some of the smaller ones like Cullen with hickories too uh, and I'm going to try to take on Presswick with hickories just because well you know best of luck with that i'm, I'm pleased to hear that askernish is on the itinerary for listeners that may not know and i'm sure there probably may be some people out there that haven't heard about askernish it's obviously on the outer hebridean island of south uist what can you tell us about askernish askernish golf club was founded by uh, in 1891 Keep in mind that most of these golf courses happen right after 1890. And that's for the simple reason that that's when the boom begins, when John Ball wins Mm -hmm. and golf starts going insane. There was a noble woman there whose name escapes me at the moment. I think it might have been Lady Cathcart. But in any case, she wanted a, a, a golf course built on her estate so that her visitors could play. And that old Tom came out there with Horace Hutchinson in tow. They were good friends. Uh, Horace might have been interested in fishing out by Ashkenish because there's a lot of great trout fishing over that way. Any, in any case, they went, Tom laid out the course. Uh, over time, <clears throat> after the war, I believe, the course disappeared. And some years later, I'm, I'm not sh- sure of the dates right at the top of my head, but not long ago, 15 or so years ago, um, the course was sort of rediscovered. And uh, uh, um, some golf architects went out there and, and found it again in the landscape. So they, the course is maintained without chemicals, you know, exactly the same way Tom would have maintained it in 1891 when it was built. So it's got to be one of the more Aboriginal courses you'll ever be able to find in Scotland. Uh, you know, most of Tom's work has been redesigned over the years for the reasons that we were explaining, the new ball and everything else. So there aren't as many original old Tom holes in existence as you would hope for. Um, not, you know, obviously the first at Makrahanish is one. What is now the 17th at Presswick is one. Uh, the first at London Links, which isn't on the old Tom Morse Trail. But there, there are not as, you know, most of them have been redesigned and changed. But Ashkerness exists exactly the way that, or more, as close to the way old Tom laid it out as anything. So does Cullen and uh, probably more old as well. I haven't gotten all the research done on this. I got to do it while I'm along the trail some. 
but uh, but Ashkerness is like uh, the ghost course that came back to life. So that's a, just a great story. Yeah, I knew you would have the inside track on that. Rest assured, I will stick a link in the show notes as a really cool, pretty four or five minute piece that BBC Alva, BBC Scotland, in other words, did maybe 18 months to two years ago, which shows some, some really good footage of the golf course. I hope, for your sake, Stephen, that the mist doesn't come down and that you're not stuck in the airport. I believe that is a, a risk when flying in and out of South Uist. Well, one way or another, we'll get there. If we have to take the ferry, we'll take the ferry. But, uh, the, um, you know, there's also a wonderful piece by David Owen that was done in the New Yorker called The Ghost Course okay. uh, that explains the history and revival of Ashkerness. And uh, that's the most definitive story on it that I've seen. John Garrity... Uh, of Sports Illustrated, I think also followed along as the course was rediscovered and made. And he wrote a series of pieces about that in Sports Illustrated uh, that are also worth the readers looking up if they're interested to find out more about Ashkerton. Sure, I believe Martin Ebert and Adam Lawrence, who obviously is the editor of Golf Course Architecture magazine, were involved initially. That's the name I couldn't remember of the architect who came and donated his time to resuscitate the course, I believe. So... It's, it's a really interesting thing. I'm interested to get out there and see more of it. You know, Scottish weather is Scottish weather. You know, you, you, I'm, I'm, I don't need to have great weather. Uh, you put your waterproofs on and you go forward. Part of and golf also, that's fun is fighting the elements. And also you wait half an hour, it's going to change. Exactly. So it's, uh, I, uh, one of the things that really struck me about the long golden afternoon and, and even before that is the unspeakable weather in which they just played off you know john henry taylor is playing in an open at hoylake and it's literally a hurricane practically going on as he walks to the first tee the press tents are all blown away but he just goes and tees it up and plays shoot 77 i think it was in an absolute gale of 40 some miles an hour around one of the hardest golf courses in the world in championship condition so you know we have become so sissified uh, in the game of golf. The idea, I, the idea that somebody would declare on a professional tour, lift clean in place because it might rain. And some people might have to get mud on their ball. is just absolutely laughable. And uh, the unspeakable conditions in which tournaments went on would drive modern golfers. You know, with the, people have no idea the kind of weather these men played in and uh without hesitation you've reminded me of the great harry bradshaw the head pro at port Mernick golf club for many years the conclusion of the 1949 open championships at royal st george's would see bobby Locke prevail over bradshaw in a 36 hole playoff the result however could have been very different but for an unusual occurrence in the second round of the event on the fifth tee bradshaw pushed his drive into the rough with the ball coming to rest at the bottom of a broken bottle. With no referee to hand, Bradshaw was unsure as to whether a free drop was available. So he closed his eyes, swung hard, and amidst shattering glass was able to advance the ball some 25 yards en route to making a six. Golfers back then appeared to have been far hardier than the more modern, sissified incarnations that you speak of, many of whom seemed to favour fairness and consistency over challenge and adventure. They don't even want to hit it out of a footprint or out of sand that isn't exactly like the sand they played last week. 
and the week before. I was interested at Southern Hills that, you know, slight modification in the type of sand used in the bunker, still raked like a geranium bed, as John Ball would derisively call it. Uh, you know, slight modification in the type of sand, none of them can hit a shot. And they're all freaked out and they hate the golf course. Or they, they, I don't think they hated the golf course, but they hated the bunkers. And it's just, you know, it just goes to show the game has been, you know, I don't know. I think it's the, the modern game has become so pathetically easy and everything has to be so predictable for a, a professional player that uh, I just think it's, it's nay golf. Nay golf, there's nay adventure, nay thriller, and it's not too sporty either. You know, it's not helped with the fact that, and, and look, to a certain degree, the PGA Tour takes it to the nth degree in terms of the setup book and how deep the sand should be and what the particle size should be. And it's just, it's, it's monochromatic across the board. So when the guys actually come to a challenge that's slightly different, they have an expectation of Y and they get Z and they just some of them and to be fair look Nicholas said golf is a game of adjustment so glad to get on with it you're meant to be the best golfers in the world adjust you know it's interesting the rules have become so much easier too like the back cover of my book is a wonderful painting by a English artist named Sandra Russell that is uh, taken from she made a watercolor from an old photograph that I sent her a grainy old photograph and it shows the uh moment of crisis in the 1899 amateur championship final between John Ball and Fred Tate. Uh, it was played at Presswick, you know, obviously at this time when it's been expanded to 18 holes, the Alps is the 17th hole. You have to carry that giant dune. And then you also have to carry the yawning Sahara bunker right in front of the green with your, with your second or your third shot, depending on where you hit your drive. It rained all week long. The Sahara bunker was ankle deep in water. Uh, there was no relief from what we now would refer to as casual water. You, it was a two-stroke penalty to remove your ball from the water. Gutty balls floated. So what you needed to do uh, was to wade in and hit the ball out of the water. Uh, and Freddie Tate approaches that hole. Uh, this is the second 18, so we're on the 35th hole. Freddie Tate is one down to John Ball. John Ball, he also hits it in the bunker, uh, but he didn't go in the water. He's just right underneath of the sleepers there uh, with a very, very difficult shot from a muddy ground. Uh, but Tate's right in the middle of the lake. So Tate either loses the final of the championship right there or he wades in and hits it. And that's one of the more exciting moments in the history of golf. Uh, not going to go into any further what happened, but Tate did wade in and did hit it. And, uh, pretty interesting developments that followed that so and, and the rest you know imagine a pro today hitting his ball from the water just that was in a bunker not you know taking his shoes off and trying to hit from the edge of the lake like you see some of them do or whatever but just to wade into the bunker and hit it and uh it was a different game then and a vastly more difficult game and that's one of the reasons i feel like modern players have a significant and lack of appreciation for the quality of golf that was played by some of these people. They look at scores only and scores are not very telling, you know, scores are relative to conditions. And, uh, you know, I'll, uh, if you give some modern player, let's say Jordan Spieth, anybody, uh, John Ball, seven clubs, 
at Presswick in 1890, I'll take ball against any of them every day of the week. Uh, make them play with his clubs and his ball and his agronomy, and let's see who's the better player. Uh, I'd happily take that challenge. Yeah, I followed a link maybe eight or ten months ago from Golf Club Atlas to YouTube, which is actually in conjunction with an Open Championship, maybe back in the late 60s, early 70s, perhaps. And Dave Marr and Tony Jacklin were essentially out on a Lynx course in Scotland somewhere using long nose clubs and, and whatnot. It was just to to see them struggle to try and hit a gutty in the right direction uh, and get it to stop and try and hold the green or hold puts, it was just comical. Yes, and, and I just think there's a tremendous lack of appreciation for, here's, just think about this for one second. It's 1870, no one has yet invented ribbing on clubs. All the clubs are smooth-faced. There's a ball that makes a top flight ball look like it's soft as can be. Uh, you can't hit the ball more than about 180, even if you're a great player. And there, you know, the, the, the greens are mowed only by sheep. Nobody's invented the mower yet. Uh, and young Tommy goes around Presswick, a very, very difficult course, in 149 strokes for 36 holes. That's the equivalent of shooting 74 for 118 and 75 for another 18. And an era when 86 or 87 or 88 would win the tournament. So these men played extraordinary golf. People like Tommy, John Ball, Harold Hilton, all of them. They were really, truly great golfers. And I don't think one of the reasons I write these books is to try to tell the story and provide the appropriate context so that you, as the average guy, teen or woman, teeing it up on a Saturday or Sunday afternoon can have some appreciation for the kind of great golf that has been played over the 162 year competitive life of golf. Uh, you know, too many modern players think of golf as beginning with Arnold Palmer. And, you know, there's a long, long history of golf that precedes the modern age and much, much, much truly great golf has been played. And I'm just trying to tell those stories in a sort of way that anybody can appreciate just the heroic efforts of people who have come before. And I'm going to recite one quote that I love from Darwin because he writes about Harold Hilton and he's doing an essay. He says, I don't want this to be a statistical article, uh, but perhaps I shall lay out some of his victories as the years go ruthlessly on and make dim the brightest of records. And that's, that's what happens is that the years go by things change, people forget. And then they tend to view everything in the context of the modern age. Uh, and they don't get that the quality of some of the golf that's been played. And I'm trying to help them understand that there's been some awfully great golf played over the long history of this game. And it's worth knowing about. You know, you're doing a wonderful job at that. And I'm assuming, having heard you speak, previously and obviously as part of this conversation i'm pretty sure you have another book idea in the works what can you tell us oh, oh most certainly do what can you tell uh, us well, Gresham, for the new book uh, who its protagonists are and and the nature of its particular importance well first you know the rest of this year i'll probably spend trying to do something valuable on the old tom morris trail 
uh, for the people who have so graciously uh, hosted me over all these wonderful golf links. But I think end of this year, early next year, I've been planning to do a third book, but I want to write about the history of women's golf. I feel as if women's golf is at a turning point worldwide. I feel like not enough serious work has been done about the history of the women's game. And so the book I want to do is um, about, would be based around a match that takes place 1929 at St. Andrews between Joyce Weatherid and Glenna Collette there. They had one of the great rivalries in the history of our game. And that match is a particularly thrilling contest. Uh, it's the British Ladies Championship. And um, through that, you would be able to tell the story of the rise of women's golf in England and the rise of women's golf in the United States, which are really the first places where women's game takes serious foothold. And so you can construct a relatively good narrative history of the early women's golf and uh, also through this really exciting rivalry between these two wonderful players. If I had to name my top five golfers of all time, Joyce Weatherwood would be one of them. I just think of her as an extraordinary player. Uh, and so that's, that's my next project. Um, and I'm going to really start working on it more or less full time. Uh, once I meet my obligations uh, to the, to the Bonnie week off and the folks who have sponsored me on this trail. Sorry, just to circle back on the old Tom Morris trail, where can, do you have a website that people can check out if they're looking for more information on that? Yes, there is a oldtommorristrail.com website where they have uh, uh, information. Um, I'll be uh, posting on Twitter from all the places I go. Um, I'm going to use a hashtag called Finding Tom. And uh, so if you if you look at hashtag Finding Tom, you'll be able to follow the things I post, including my introductory post today. I'll probably also use the hashtag oldtommorristrail. Uh, but there is a website for at bonniewegolf.com. Uh, and the oldtommorristrail.com where you can learn more about the trail and opportunities for playing it. I look forward to in due course reading all about Glenna Clethier and, and Joyce Weatherard. I'm assuming Weatherard being a very unusual name, Roger Weatherard has to be some form of relation. That's her brother. Legend. Okay, who obviously co-authored with Tom Simpson. No, it's H.N. Weatherard, her dad, who co-authored the book with Tom. I beg, I beg your pardon. I beg your pardon. Yes. Of course, of course. Yes, so her family is obviously quite prominent in English golf. Roger, uh, and one of the reasons Joyce became so good uh, was that Roger obviously was a member of the society, as so many uh, golfers were, and she played frequently with members of society as a young woman uh, against Cyril Tolley, against her brother Roger. So she competed against great male golfers all her life, and my favorite Joyce stories, one of the things that drew me to Joyce is in 1930, at the very peak of his golfing powers, Bobby Jones comes to St. Andrews and, of course, wins the tournaments on the way to the Grand Slam, both the Open and the Amateur that year. Uh, while he's in St. Andrews, Joyce idolizes Bobby Jones. She plays a match with him from the back tee at St. Andrews. Wow. And... Uh, she loses the match one up, uh, but Bobby was just absolutely blown away by her as a golfer. It was very close match all the way around. Bobby could outdrive her, but her iron shots were always closer to the hole than his from wherever she played. She has a perfect swing. 
one of the more perfect swings in history. And she just has a great temperament for the game. So after the match, the press, of course, was amazed by how well Joyce did. And they came up to Bobby and they asked him about it. They, he said, have you ever played? They asked him, have you ever played with a better woman golfer? And he responded as follows. I've never played with any golfer, amateur or professional, man or woman, who made me feel so utterly outclassed. It was impossible to believe that Miss Weatherwood would ever miss a shot, and she never did. Something. Some endorsement. Yeah, she was she was something very special, and so was Glenna Collette. Uh, so it, it should be a really good book. Uh, it's a good story, that match, and they are both great stories themselves as individuals. So I'm really excited to try to do something about the women's game. I feel like, you know, that's just something I feel called to do. So I'm, I'm going to do that next. I can think of nobody better able to to grasp that particular challenge and run with it properly and accordingly. Regular listeners will know that I conclude all of my interviews by asking the same final questions. No doubt you have packing to do, so I'm, I'm feeling guilty now for keeping you so long. Oh, no, 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 we're fine. I, uh, I know what the questions are because I'm a regular listener. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, the first one obviously is bucket list, and you have some flexibility here. So I'd like to hear of five golf courses or more or less, whatever you want. Your choices can relate to return visits, places you've played or yet to experience uh the choice is yours well i have two bucket list items and they are kind of tours rather than individual courses i'm desperate to play the royal melbourne golf course and the sandbelt courses of australia Uh, i was recently you you can't not have that on your on your itinerary i I need to have done that at some point i recently was assigned a story for through the green magazine by my friend roger about arthur lefevre who was a great australian golfer and club maker and i had fun researching that and it just made me have an even stronger desire to, to go play Royal Melbourne and, and the President's Cup. I love the way the course played in the President's Cup. I love the fact that the course revealed that only the greatest of great golfers, Tiger Woods, knew how to play it the proper way and just dominated everybody, even in the late stages of his career. So I really want to play in the Melbourne Sandbelt and meet. I think Mike Clayton is probably the most interesting person in golf today. I'd, I'd love to be able to meet Mike and play it with Mike. You get no disagreement from me with that statement. So the, the other thing I love about Australia is I feel like Australia is really leading the way in a number of areas in golf, particularly men and women competing together, uh, inclusivity, uh, introducing people to the game in a simple way, the way Sandy Jamison does with the one club. There's just an awful lot of good things happening in Australian golf. So I'd like to go see that. And then, of course, the one thing I haven't done, what would Bernard would call a scandalous gap of ignorance, uh, is I have not played, I've not made a grand tour of English golf, which I really ought to have done. Some of this is just, I, I'm not wealthy enough to pursue the life that I pursue, truth be told. Uh, and I have played Hoylake and St. George's because they are the ones that are central to the book. But I want to play Woking desperately. That's Bernard's course. I want to play Royal North Devon. I want to make a grand tour of English courses uh, and see some of the great English courses. So those are the two things I really want to do the most, uh, are those two. Actually, I, I've not played Royal Melbourne yet. I am hopeful of a return down there. I was kind of trying to figure out, would I go the end of this year, start of next year, or should I wait until Clates and Mike DeVries open Seven Mile Beach? I think I'll do that, rather than have to go back down. Not that I don't like going back down, because of course I do. And 
absolutely I'm, I'm on the same page as you in terms of the the grand tour of of, of england i've i've managed to to get a bit of liverpool golf in and then a little bit of golf around aberdeen but that's about the height of it um so i'm due a tour of of uk or england should i say uh, as well getting to the last question stephen for the time being you've immersed yourself in the writings of the game of golf for at least the past 20 years what two books suggest themselves as worthy additions to a golfing library well i would say that the most important golf book that i've read is tom morse of saint andrews the colossus of golf by david malcolm and peter crabtree there isn't any more important figure in the history of the game than tom and that biography is a staggering accomplishment with research that boggles the mind. The amount of research that was done on that biography is amazing. It's a wonderful book. So that'd be book one. And I feel like every golfer should read Playing the Life. That's my favorite golf book by Bernard Darwin. So I would recommend those two if you haven't read them. Playing the Life not only has the heroes of old essays, which are absolutely magical, but it has a lot of other great essays like... Uh, the Black Flag, which uh, I once tried to talk my boss into that. Uh, it was a match played regularly by two guys and the only stakes, no filthy lucre changes hands, as Bernard put it. Uh, the stakes were loser wears a black tie to the office on Monday, flies the black flag of defeat. And uh, I put the essay on my publisher's desk and said, I don't want to play for money anymore. I want to play for these stakes. And his answer was not printable in a family newspaper. So we didn't end up doing that. But Playing the Like and Colossus of Golf are the, are the two books I would recommend that everybody reads. In conclusion, you might just share with listeners how they can get a pre-order on your new book, The Long Golden Afternoon, access and buy the previous book, The Monarch of the Green, and then subject to space, uh, is it possible to attend your new book launch on, in St. Andrews on the 16th of June? Please feel free to say no if it's, uh, if it's a, a ticket of the fair. It's a, the, the, I don't think there's a formal launch event per se. That's just when the book goes on display. I, I invite everybody and anybody to come and hear me read from the book at, at uh, Waterstone St. Andrews on the 11th of June at 6.30 p.m. I'm going to read from the Long Golden Afternoon and probably uh, recite some of the Elegy to a Golfer about Tom Morris uh, and then take questions from the audience. So that is the main event launch-wise is at Waterstone St. Andrews, who is kind enough to invite me, so I'm very grateful. And if you want to buy the book and you live in the United Kingdom, my preference is that you buy it or order it from your local bookshop. I, uh, I think it's really important that bookstores continue to survive and survive for those of us who want to write for readers. Um, so you, it, most UK bookstores carry both the, the long will carry Long Golden Afternoon and most of them carry Monarch of the Green. If you cannot get it in that way, uh, particularly if you live in Europe, you need to order it on Amazon. Uh, you can order it from the publisher in the United Kingdom, Berlin Limited of Edinburgh. I like that. It's important that they get supported because they support me. And I'm very grateful to them for doing that. And in the United States, you can only get it online in the United States. Because my books are published in Scotland, my books are not able to get into U.S. bookstores. Those are, you know, the major companies in America have stranglehold on the few bookstores that still exist in the United States. But you can order it from Barnes & Noble or Amazon. If you're in the U.S., I'd rather you ordered it from Barnes & Noble because it's at least a bookstore, uh, whereas Amazon is not a bookstore. So, in fact, Amazon is killing bookstores. Uh, so uh, that, that, those would be the way to get it. Um, and uh, 
you know, I hope you find it in a bookshop. My favorite stories, every so often somebody will send a picture to me from Oban of themselves buying it at Waterstones Oban or up in Doorknock or someplace. Those are the ones that, uh, that I love because uh, I grew up in bookstores. Uh, I still like to hang out in bookstores. And one of my main joys of going to Scotland and England is just that there's still a bookstore culture there. Whereas in the United States, uh, sadly, uh, the independent bookstore is, is pretty much non-existent. Stephen, just one last thing. How should people reach out to you in the Twitter sphere or online if they wanted to say hello? The, I, do, I don't, I'm, I'm kind of a Luddite. I'm only because my children made me did I get on Twitter and that was a good decision. So uh, I'm at S Proctor Golf on Twitter. Uh, anybody who DMs me, I accept it unless you're like a, a bot from Russia, uh, which a lot of them do DM you. Uh, beautiful looking women that are not actually in existence. Um, those people I block, but I accept DMs from anybody. I get questions all the time from people about what books would you recommend I read if I'm interested in this, and I'm happy to answer those questions. Um, and, you know, by all means, follow along on the old Tom Morse trail. I'm going to be doing some interesting things, I hope, uh, from there uh, on my Twitter account, S. Proctor Golf. Stephen Proctor, it's been an absolute pleasure to explore both your backstory and the specifics of the nascent development of the game as it seeped out of Scotland and around the world. Continued success with your writing. Enjoy your Scottish summer. I have that in inverted commas because we know what the Scottish summer is like, potentially, or not. Uh, and if you ever find yourself in Dublin, please make sure to holler so we have a hookup, play some golf, and share some stories. Go easy. I would love that, Shane. One of these days I need to get to Ireland. I've not visited Ireland. It's another scandalous gap of ignorance as we talk about. And I very much enjoy this podcast, doing this with you and listening to what you do. I think you're adding something very important in the space, thoughtful, long conversation. So I really enjoy them. I've listened to everyone you've done and I expect to keep on doing that. Well, thank you very much for the kind words. That's the uh, Mutual Appreciation Society over. Alrighty. Cheers, Pop. Cheers, my man. Talk to you soon. Many thanks for tuning in. As usual, you can find us online at firmandfast.golf or on Twitter at firmandfastgolf. Please continue to like, subscribe, and comment. It really is appreciated. Until the next time, happy golfing.